Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Bill Lawrence to the podcast. Bill is a distinguished research professor at James Cook University in Cairns, Australia, and also holds the Prince Bernard Chair in International Nature Conservation at Utrecht University, Netherlands. His research over more than 35 years spans the tropical world. A leading voice for conservation, Bill believes that scientists must actively engage policymakers and the general public, as well as other scientists. He is also founder and director of ALERT, the Alliance of Leading Environmental Researchers and Thinkers, a group that advocates for environmental sustainability. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. You bet. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. So I've been receiving emails from you from time to time. And um, uh, recently, I, I got a couple of which really uh, drew my attention. And um, I wanted to speak to you about uh, some of the recent research you've been doing about your observations on the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, some of the uh, implications of, 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 of those uh, major infrastructure plans and investments. Can you tell me a little bit about your work uh, before, as a, by way of background, and a little bit about ALERT? Yes, uh, Fergal. Uh, well, in broad terms, for almost four decades now, longer than I care to admit, uh, I've been working in the tropics, um, various places from the Amazon to Africa to the Asia-Pacific region, trying to essentially understand how human, how human beings change tropical forests that impact on biodiversity and on the ecosystems and the functioning of the forests and their survival. So um, I started off studying habitat fragmentation, but then, you know, gone into things from hunting to infrastructure, road building, fires, logging, uh, really climate change, you know, and, and sort of the whole gamut of human impacts and including the synergisms, which is the interactions of the way multiple environmental insults can kind of pile up on top of each other. Um, now, alert, uh, which you mentioned, is the, 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 the that's a, you know, a an acronym for the Alliance of Leading Environmental Researchers and Thinkers, and that's a um, sort of a science advocacy group that. Um, I founded in 2013, so it's been a few years ago now, um, but it's grown quite a lot, and we've been very fortunate to have a large group of very eminent scientists from around the world join as sort of a core group, and Alert is completely free. We don't uh, charge anybody anything. Um, you know, we don't take uh, donations. We just basically use, you know, volunteer our own time and we use a variety of social media means to try to get out information about important environmental issues, uh, try to give little mini syntheses about once a week. And it's been growing. Um, uh, been fortunate to get a little bit of external money so I can hire a social media a strategist. But we've got, uh, on a good week, more than a million people reading reading it now. So it's it's grown quite a bit. And it's, and it's you know, it's it's been a fair bit of work, but it's good to see it's starting to reach people and especially a lot of people overseas. We, we make 
we have to write quite simply because a lot of people, you know, English is not their first language. So a lot of people in, in Spanish and Portuguese and French and other languages are writing and, and, and reading and, and, uh, and we, you know, we're, we're happy to see it grow and happy to be trying to reach people about, you know, a lot of what we consider to be some pretty significant issues. Yes, absolutely. Uh, quite a gamut of, of, of issues. And as you say, the synergisms, which just add that much more uh, momentum. So I just wonder, before we start, what, what do you think uh, are, are, are a couple of the biggest, what, what's on, on your radar as the most important uh, environmental issues that we need to resolve now? Well, I think the, the one that I'm the most immediate and urgent issue I see on the horizon is this enormous expansion of roads and other infrastructure all around the world. And really, it's just opening up the last wild places on the planet like a flayed fish. So just about everywhere we look, from the Congo Basin to the Amazon to Borneo to Sumatra to New Guinea, it's all, you know, you're just seeing, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of kilometers of, of new roads, oftentimes illegal roads, very often unmapped, unknown, um, and they're being created for all kinds of reasons, for, for mining and for timber and for um, other purposes. And um, they're just, it's just a tsunami. And there's also a lot of other infrastructure. There's, you know, uh, hydroelectric dams and there's power lines and gas lines and railroads and other things. But roads are kind of the universal um, thing that knit, that links them all together because you know you don't you can't really build a big hydro dam in the middle of the Amazon without having roads for constructing and, and maintaining the dam and for the and power lines. Uh, same thing for a mine mining project. Um, so for instance, there's a study that came out recently that showed looked at the 50 biggest mining projects in the Amazon and found out that uh, and these are big industrial mines found out that on average there was 12 times as much deforestation um, being caused by the roads that were being put in to access the mine than by the mining project itself, including all the tailings and all the other you know, stuff associated with the mining project. So um, you know, that's, that's a pretty telling statistic, which is that a lot of these things that we tend to think of as environmental threats, what's actually the worst part of them are the roads and the transportation uh, infrastructure that we put in that make them possible. And it's just sort of tearing to shreds the last remnants of wild ecosystems that we have on the earth. Is there a pattern or a cycle to how this all unfolds? Well, what we really see again and again is a sort of Pandora's box of environmental harm being opened up by the roads. Once you put the road in, in many of these areas, you get waves of illegal colonization, deforestation, fires, poaching, illegal mining activity, land speculation. We kind of see this cycle just happening over and over and over again. And, um, you know, the analogy we kind of use is really roads are kind of, I mean, deforestation is kind of like a cancer in that if you if you see how deforestation spreads around the world, it's very contagious. It grows just like a tumor and it sort of spreads out from from 
so from a you know a central location. So when you put in a road, you get deforestation sort of growing like a series of tumors along the road. Then what you tend to happen is you get people putting in secondary roads off of that, the main road, and then tertiary roads off of that. And then the, the cancer spreads, uh, just like real cancer spread, off into these secondary and other roads. So in effect, if you if you want to stay healthy, the best option, you know, is not to get cancer in the first place. And so what we say is the best option to maintain these ecosystems is actually just to stop the first road, to stop the first cut. It's the first cut that's the worst. And, I, and that's tough. I mean, what we're really saying is that there are places that just have to remain road free. And once the road goes in, um, either one, you know, one of a couple things is normally going to happen. Either governments are going to have to spend a lot of money and it's essentially a, you know, long-term, essentially infinite investment in maintaining control over these frontier areas in terms of illegal activities and logging and drug production and, and mining and other things that tend to happen and poaching activity. Or, um, it's just going to be chaos. And this is what we see in, in so much, so many situations is just this, essentially the, the cancer runs rampant. So the analogy I use is that, um, you know, it's like it's in the real world. If you get cancer, you're up for kind of chemotherapy or radiation, which is the equivalent of, uh, you know, costly long-term treatment. The government has to invest a lot of money to try to keep things under control or the cancer spreads like crazy, and that's not good. Um, or you, your one option is to try to get in early and cut the cancer out, and that would be equivalent to going in and just closing down the road as soon as you possibly can. So if you find an illegal road, or let's say you have a, a logging road, close it down just as as quickly as you can, and that would be sort of the equivalent of surgically removing the cancer. But the bottom line is, there's just so many places in the world where you just can't have roads. And any kind of anything approaching natural ecosystems. And it's a sad reality to say that, but humans and wild nature are just not compatible in, in many circumstances. Right. And to what extent are these roads intrinsic to economic development in these countries? Well, it really varies. Um, I mean, roads are very often seen as a major. Uh, you know, like a fundamental process of the whole economic development. But what we've found is, and when you look at this more critically, what you see is that some roads are, are in fact, very successful, but others, in fact, um, are much less successful and others turn into really big money losers. So it's very important to look at the, at, look at the specific circumstances in the context of individual roads, because what we find is that there's a lot of, of, really silly, dumb road building going on. And it, particularly in, in which is, is seen a lot of the high rainfall tropical environments that we work in, a lot of very expensive roads get built. And then within just a few years, they get flooded out. The roads turn into, they get potholes or they get slumping in cracks and they collapse. And this, you know, what might be a hundred million dollar highway that was built and with these giant ambitions of, you know, uh, opening up this frontier for development, in fact, after a few years, essentially becomes almost useless, a, a giant waste of money. So what we really advocate is building fewer roads, but building smarter roads and focusing on ones where you can also be assured that there's money being set aside for the maintenance 
of those roads. Because if you're going to spend a bunch of money up front squandering your natural resources or borrowing money internationally to build a road, and then you're not investing the money that you need to, to maintain it, well, that's just a dumb investment. So we actually spent a lot of time talking about money and social benefits, finances and social benefits, as well as the environment. Because we find, guess what, um, you know, financial opportunities and and social opportunities are very important in the in the agendas of people living in developing countries. Yes, yes. Now you mentioned the illegal uh, roads, the logging roads, and of, of, and various roads of that kind. But I guess for mainstream large infrastructure projects, there's some governance, the Convention on Biological Diversity. You know, in terms of uh, identifying risks and side effects from infrastructure projects and things like that. And and how is that governance? Uh, enacted well in truth the, a lot of the governance is not great um, virtually every country on the planet has good laws um, on paper um, and typically for, for, particularly for what's you know called environmental impact statements or in, in EIAs environmental impact assessments but those EIAs for lots of reasons turned out to be very weak, superficial, short-term, flawed, myopic. You know, they've got all kinds of problems with them. Um, and we could talk for hours, um, you, you know, about, about about that for a little bit. Um, but so really what's needed, we've argued, is rather than these um, EIAs, which are very narrowly focused in short-term, we need to think, look at things much in a larger term in a more proactive and strategic way. So instead of, for instance, looking at one little, let's say the Amazon or, or Borneo are dying a death of, you know, these areas are dying a death of a thousand cuts, rather than looking at one cut at a time and saying, what's the impact of this going to be in isolation from everything else? What we really need to do is look across the whole region, across the whole landscape and say, what is the net effect of all of this stuff? And so that's really what we advocate is a much more strategic and proactive approach. That is not really happening hardly anywhere. Um, not, at, not the way it needs to be. I mean, governments are drawing lines on maps and they're saying we want to put roads here and here, but that's not strategic planning. You know, strategic planning involves really looking at the environmental costs and the social and economic um, costs and opportunities and making smart cost-benefit analyses and, and choosing the best, uh, the smartest and the best investments. That's not happening very much at all. So really what's going on far too often is a pretty, somewhere between chaos and very weak control. And in other cases, there's a really strong imprint of, of corruption and and graft that are influencing the, the process can you talk about china's so-called belt and road initiative the mother of all infrastructure development programs just how big is it well there's never been anything seen like it in the history of the planet earth um, it'll cover half the planet it's going to involve about seven thousand separate infrastructure projects altogether. Um, it'll be really linking china with much of Asia, Southeast Asia, the South Pacific, Africa, Central Asia, and Europe. Uh, so China will become sort of the economic and geopolitical hub as a consequence of this. But it's going to be opening up 
and dramatically altering much of the world's land surface. Um, total budget right now is around eight trillion U.S. dollars, um, but it'll probably end up be, being more than that if if everything proceeds. Right now, about seventy different nations will have projects in them. So you know, you're talking about um, the biggest assemblage of infrastructure projects by far that's ever been proposed under the aegis of any program. It's, it's, I, we don't, we don't really have an analogy for it because we've never seen anything like it. And based on China's form so far in terms of these projects, what, 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 what worries you? Well, quite a lot, actually, uh, because I've been working, you know, on the ground in a lot of places where Chinese corporations and public-private corporations and partnerships and Chinese financiers and lenders and their multilateral lenders are operating, uh, I have actually a great deal of concern about China's mode of operation. Um, They've China is producing sort of a rain of green, green sounding documents and paper, but I don't, I have not yet seen that playing out on the ground. Um, inside China, the situation is a bit different. China is becoming, is improving inside China, but the way China operates internationally is much different. And there's reasons for that. China, but China has, with its, you know, um, since the 1990s, with its completely new economic model, has really given its overseas corporations up and lenders and financiers operating overseas almost a completely free hand. And one of the things that's profoundly influenced them was the collapse of the Soviet Union and its top-down economy. So the very deep philosophy was that we're not going to repeat that mistake again. So we're just going to let, um, you know, what are oftentimes very, very ambitious and and aggressive, and I would say, you know, I would use the term predatory, oftentimes predatory entrepreneurs working out in many of these remote areas um, are, are really environmentally destructive and um, also socially and, and, and in some cases financially, um, you know, uh, seriously damaging projects. And I, I just, it sounds stereotypical to make a statement, statements like this, and I'm very cautious about doing it, but I, the, the Chinese business model and model for operating overseas is one of a very aggressive and, again, verging on predatory development and one in which the government has very little, not only control, but also there's very little transparency. Um, the, you know, there's, there's not legislation like you would have in most countries where there would be say something like the overseas, uh, corrupt businesses act, like you might see in the United States. Um, you would not have open media, uh, in China at all. Um, it's among the, the worst ranked nations on the planet. It's fourth from the bottom in terms of all the nations that have been ranked in terms of media openness. And then you've got under president Xi Jinping, this BRI program, and this is really his baby. I mean, this is his pet project. And he's actually had it incorporated into the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party, which means it's actually a crime for any Chinese national to criticize it. 
So, you know, you put that and then on top of that, Xi Jinping has now become effectively um, what could be argued, you know, you know, the lifetime leader possibly verging towards a dictator of China. And there's no one keen to cross him at all. And this is absolutely his pet project. And he's and his the culture has been to just allow these corporations essentially unfettered access and and activities overseas again china doesn't operate there's a lot of things happening differently inside china um and so china is greening is greening itself quite a lot inside not in every way but externally it's a completely different situation and i don't think people understand that they get confused because they hear people say, oh, well, China, you know, they, they've got this concept of green civilization and they've got this and they want to do things in a sustainable way. But they're getting confused because they're hearing about stuff happening inside China. And that's not the same thing that's happening um, overseas. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the, the banks, so the China Development Bank, the Export-Import Bank of China? Um, and clearly, there's all kinds of financing packages behind this, multilateral banks, and indeed, something we'll come on to also, foreign banks as well. Um, and there seems to be a little bit of a feeding frenzy, potentially, in the offing there. I was a quote which I saw from uh, one of the leaders in, in, in uh, Citigroup saying, our multinational clients see the Belt and Road Initiative as a generational opportunity to expand the scale and reach of their businesses. But maybe just talking about the Chinese banks first. Well, so China has a whole bunch. Of, I mean, there's lots of banks. So you, you have the, the, the multilateral banks, which would be the equivalent of the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank in China. Um, so the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank would be an equivalent of that. Um, and then you get um, private banks, um, which is like the Bank of China. And uh, see the Chinese Import Export Bank, I think that's also, I can't remember if that's private or multilateral. But so the multilateral banks tend to have a broader um, ambit and responsibility. They're supposed to be promoting development and profit is supposed to be um, kind of a secondary uh, consideration, whereas the private banks and the private capital is all about profits. Um, so China has everything, and they have, you know, they're enormously capitalized across the board in terms of their multilateral banks and their and their private banks as well. And there is such a there's an alphabet soup of all the banks. So many I used to have them all straight in my head, but they've now. There's been so many of them that I'm now confused on which ones are multilateral and which ones are private and which ones are, are you know, playing different roles. Um, but uh, China is overwhelmingly the largest investor in the BRI, but of course a lot of other nations, and I think feeding frenzy is about the right word, a lot of other nations are salivating and looking at this as an opportunity um, you know, to gain traction in a lot of new markets, um, to see their market shares in China increasing. China sees this. It's very clear that this is partly development and a, and a substantial amount of what you might call geopolitics and that China wants to see this, sees this as a mechanism for spreading its own influence and its own model of development and way of thinking. And also a very big uh, part of China's agenda is actually – to 
see its currency, the, uh, the yuan, um, becoming um, much more, really probably supplanting the U.S. dollar and other major currencies um, such as British pound, sterling, as as commonly used currencies for international trade. Um, right now, because things like petroleum and other things are often traded in dollars, that has implications for Chinese development. What they really want to do is, in, a, in effect, displace and kind of supplant the U.S. dollar with their currency because that will give them a lot more control over markets, control over commodities, control over many things. And it's I think it's just part of their broader, um, what you might call geopolitical agenda for the next 20 or 30 years. Yes, yes. And there does seem to have been research, and you've probably seen it in the ground. I mean, a lot of these international projects, money passes hands, there's bribery of various kinds. You're absolutely right, um, Phil, in that there is so much bribery going on. I mean, uh, I had two trips last year to Africa. Uh, we did a 2,000-kilometer trip across the Congo region. Um, and I've never – I mean, China's actually – Chinese corporations – use bribery in a different manner than I've ever seen it used. And I thought I'd seen just about every manifestation of bribery because I've been doing this for, as I said, for close to four decades now and all over the, all over the world. Um, but Chinese entrepreneurs tend to go in very much at the top and they tend to bribe the top officials and then they tend to get sort of carte blanche access to forests and resources and whatever else they want. And in fact, it's, it's a different model, although what you might call, you know, gratuities and uh, gifts and payments and all these other nice ways of trying to use the word corruption have been used for a very long time by everybody, just about everybody working in most of these nations. They've been used in very different ways. And for instance, Europeans working in Africa had had a long history of, a, in effect, kind of trying to spread the gifts around. So there was much more of a distribution of gifts. They were bribes, but they were much smaller, but they tend to be spread you know, across local districts into local individuals and local offices. And then, you know, as well as gifts that would going on up to political hierarchy. Um, China doesn't tend to operate that way. Chinese entrepreneurs tend, tend not to operate that way. They have had a culture and they've been allowed to get away with a much more blatant type of corruption, which has often involved much larger and much more direct connection with very high ranking government officials. And so what you've seen and what you do see is public officials at high levels, you know, ministers of mines, ministers of, of, of lands and of, of forests becoming fabulously enriched and I, I don't you know and them and their families and their cronies and their supporters i mean not just you know a little bit enriched or well you know uh, fantastically even grossly wealthy and, and that's you know that's a that's a, so worrisome because what it says is that a lot of decisions are being made not because they're good for equitable development or they're going to help a large cross-section of the population or the, you know, the benefits are going to be widely distributed, but that you're going to have a small, very small subset 
of the population becoming fabulously enriched. And then you, in fact, have a much longer tail of, you know, many people living in poverty, below poverty or at near poverty levels. And they're actually falling behind because of there is more capital, more money flooding into these countries and you do tend to get more inflation. So living costs go up, rent costs go up, food costs go up. But yet most of the people are not getting additional income or benefits or employment. So they're actually falling behind. So it, it's it's counterintuitive, but surprisingly, these big influxes of foreign capital oftentimes can be associated with destabilizing the economies and increasing social conflict and social, um, you know, general um, dissatisfaction. And that's something that's not well understood uh, at all. So that's another one of the messages that we've been talking about is, is trying to understand, you know, when we talk about smart development, we're really talking about trying to have a much more equitable form of development where the money is getting spread much more widely and much more evenly. And it's not just being concentrated in the hands of a few. And you're not getting really dumb decisions being made. They're going to cost countries enormously in terms of squandering their natural resources or incurring, you know, building up big, uh, giant uh, international debts. Um, so, you know, there's enormous potential and opportunity to do better and smarter development than what's happening right right now what's happening right now is i mean phrases like um criminal um plunder predatory and sometimes even insane spring into my mind when i think about some of the things I'm, that are happening um it's not always like that and and there are certainly exceptions but a lot of the development that we're seeing right now in the developing nations, which is where the overwhelming majority of investment is going right now, is just um, not equitable and oftentimes quite predatory in nature. Well, it's reading your research was absolutely terrifying. This is such a hydra-headed uh, phenomenon with so many elements to it. How do you parse something like that to try and identify a few key areas? I mean, you talk about the Congo Basin, because presumably also that once you reach a certain scale of, of uh, road infrastructure, you get the kind of tipping point potential. And then I guess there are these mm -hmm. concentrations that are of, of, you know, ecosystems that are just much more valuable and important. How do you uh, rank the, you know, the, 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 key, the key areas that you you think that that we need to focus on well uh, the tropics the tropical forests are are really high on everybody's lists um for lots of reasons um from the biodiversity point of view obviously it's the biologically richest real estate on the planet in every sense um in terms of storing carbon and in terms of having a big impact on the climate through the water vapor that they give off so that they're creating a lot of the clouds that are vital for rainfall and are also vital for reflecting a lot of the solar radiation back into space and so slowing down global warming. And um, it's just, you know, so really the rainforests and the tropical forests, um, and also because they're vanishing so rapidly, this is where we're seeing a lot of the sort of tragic loss and collapse of frontiers. There's still substantial areas that are that are eroded, but are you know have not yet been destroyed. 
when you get into the issues of tipping points, that, that gets more complicated and more difficult to predict. We, that's one of the things we really want to be able to predict is at what point will these systems start collapsing? Um, we know, for instance, for African elephants, that the forest elephants, that you've kind of reached a tipping point already because there's been so much, so many roads built in the Congo Basin. And now you've got hunters with very lethal technologies like automatic weapons and also lots of cable, cheap cable and wire that they make snares out of. That we've seen the global population of African forest elephants decline by two thirds in the last decade. And ironically, it's also been Chinese, China's demand for ivory <laughs> that's driven a lot of it. Uh, China's now out, technically outlawed ivory, although there's still a lot of trade ending up there. And now it's also elephant skins. Um, but lots of other things too, tigers, jaguar. I mean, you know, lots of wildlife parts. And China has been overwhelmingly the biggest consumer of wildlife products. Um, so in the Amazon, it's a different situation. Um, the ideas are different about the Amazon. Um, there's a really serious worry about tipping points in a lot of these areas because the forests themselves generate a lot of their own rainfall. So if you imagine an area like the Congo or like the Amazon that are vast, that are far away from an, the nearest ocean, um, most of the rainfall actually tends to be internally generated. So the forests receive rainfall, but then they pump most of that water, goes right back up into the atmosphere through the process of photosynthesis, the so-called evapotranspiration. The plants open up the little pores in their leaves and they take in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. And when they do that, they release enormous amounts of water vapor. So that cycle is what drives a lot of the rainfall and the cloud cover. It's what keeps the forest wet and productive and moist and, and humid. Um, and then you start fragmenting and destroying and lugging those forests and they dry out and suddenly you're opening them up and it's so much easier for people to get in and light fires. And then you just, the system can just cartwheel out of control very quickly. And we know that the synergism between road building and fire is a really fatal and devastating synergism for a lot of tropical forests, as is the synergism between road building and hunting. Uh, so the Amazon, right now, the numbers suggest that as little as, as you know, 30%, uh, destroying 30% of the Amazon basin might be enough to actually destabilize the whole regional, what's called the hydrological dynamics, the internal dynamics of water functioning. Because so much of the Amazon's rainfall is basically produced by the forest itself. Um, but, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's, it's near the edges of our knowledge. It's using our biggest computers and our smartest people to try to, you know, make uh, inferences about what's going to happen in a complicated world. So, you know, I'm not, it's, it's you know, we're doing our best, but, but the bottom line is we do, these systems, unfortunately, are probably will, will collapse or will start to collapse. And in many cases, it'll happen. And we're not going to know until after it's occurred. Um, it's certainly been the case for, for instance, the, the great animal migrations around the world. We've seen many of them collapse. And nobody's ever wanted to, to cause them to collapse. And no one's really understood why. It's just suddenly one day, oh, wow, there aren't wildebeest here anymore. Or there aren't elephants here anymore. Or there aren't lions here anymore. So the great migration has died. So that's, you know, that is a very 
freaky but nonetheless real worry and that keeps ecologists like myself awake at night is asking how far can these systems be pushed and fragmented and internally chopped up before they do just kind of reel out of control and basically you hit a tipping point and suddenly what was a rainforest turns into just a fire driven kind of scrubby wasteland the big question of course is what what can be done and i'm wondering if you could just maybe finally just point in a few directions there because presumably china the chinese government hasn't done much so far or has done nothing has taken a hands-off approach by all accounts presumably it could do a lot more i'm also wondering about uh things like governance like the convention on biological diversity and maybe finally then you know foreign banks are involved um what other mechanisms might be available uh, i think all of the above in terms of what you mentioned uh, in fact, I'm giving a keynote talk at the Convention on Biological Diversity in Cairo um, next month. So that's a really big thing on, on their agenda now is infrastructure. Um, I'm talking to the Asian Development Bank just after that in Vietnam about keynote talk about infrastructure. So it's the flavor of the month just about everywhere. Um, we have to get the foreign banks much more involved in this. I think people have to understand much more what a serious threat it is. And I think probably most critically, the actually the host countries, the countries where the development is going to occur, need to understand what a double-edged sword this is. Um, right now, there's a great deal of uncritical acceptance and a belief that, oh, wow, this is going to be wonderful and we're going to see enormous widespread benefits. It's going to be fantastic jobs, opportunity, growth. And I don't think people are seeing that there is very much two very sharp and glinty edges to that sword and that we've seen in so many cases these what appear to be wonderful uh, economic opportunities really turn out to be um, either disasters or at least bad news. Um, just, as one, just one example, the $10 billion uh, Papua New Guinea natural gas project, which you know only a few years ago was regarded as going to be the economic savior of the nation, is now being seen as an economic disaster. So there it was, you know, the, the project that was going to save Papua New Guinea's um, economy is now seen as being um, much more causing much more economic damage than it's caused economic benefit. One of a thousand examples you could pull out of the air. So I think what we have to do, we have to basically, yeah, we have to basically try to familiarize people more with these projects. And the New Guinea one was the Papua New Guinea Natural Gas Project, or what is referred to as the PNG LNG project, the Papua New Guinea Liquid Natural Gas Project. Uh, so these things are happening with frightening rapidity, and I would dare say rapaciousness. And we really just have to familiarize everybody to the dangers involved. And until that happens, I, I think we're going to have to see, you know, a bunch of disasters happening on the ground and then people are going to start waking up. But the tragedy is, is that if we have to go through that and with the China, the Belt and Road Project, so much is going to be happening all at once. It's going to be very hard to slow that juggernaut down because it's just 
there's not going to be enough fingers to plug the holes in the dike. You, you've been working on this. You become increasingly aware. You're giving talks and you're writing about this. Who else is thinking about this, sees this as a big problem and is taking action on this question? There's um, a, several places around the world. I mean, I think a lot of people have kind of woken up to this very suddenly. So, you know, for instance, when the Convention on Biological Diversity has kind of identified this as one of their biggest themes for this whole year, that really is, makes it on the map. Um, you've got the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation and Nature, which is now has a specialist group that's looking at infrastructure and looking at what they call connectivity, the, the connection, the connectivity of ecosystems, which roads and, of course, these other projects are disrupting. Um, you've got university groups, research groups in different places. Uh, we've probably been doing it as longer, longer, uh, longer than anybody, but you've got places like um, Duke University in the U.S., You've got um, University of Malaysia uh, in uh, Kuala Lumpur um, working on this. Um, you know, they're sort of scattered groups all uh, picking this up now uh, quite a bit. But um, they're still, we're really, all of us, still very much behind the curve in terms of what's happening. There's so much momentum and money and power at hand here and really the research and the environmental um, mediation and environmental enforcement is lagging way behind. So we have a great deal of catching up to do. In the face of these huge obstacles, Bill, how do you keep optimistic? Well, to me, you don't really have an option. I mean, I have children, <laughs> two kids, and that to me means automatically I have to buy into the future. And, uh, you know, we don't have a choice. The, the options are to throw up our hands and say it's all hopeless and to just um, sort of watch disaster unfold. The alternative is to go out and do what we can and to try to make what's going to be a difficult, very difficult situation, hopefully somewhat better. And um, the good news, I think, is that we find that when we actually explain these things and we really talk about things like the people understand, which is money and votes, and we talk about things like risks, reputational risks, and financial risks, and political risks, people are starting to get it. If we can get them in the room and we can talk to them, um, they, are, they do understand it. And the politicians are understanding it. But the problem is, is there's just not enough of us out there really trying to spread the word. So we, I think we have a you know, really big challenge at hand, which is trying to get this message out to enough people so that there's, you know, enough discussion for people to say, wow, we really have to start treading more carefully. If, if not, we are going to have, you know, what could easily turn into sort of a financial and, and social and uh, environmental Armageddon-like scenario in some places, particularly where things are really spinning out of control. Right, right. Terrifying prospect, Bill. Well, I'd like to thank you for all your research, most recently on the impact of road building and the Belt and Road Initiative, and all your work to draw attention to what's clearly been a neglected but vitally important environmental issue. And I wish you the very best of success in your ongoing work. Thank you, Fergal. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.